Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be hearing from Dr. Joseph Shiora. Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be hearing from Dr. Joseph Shiora. Shiora is a very active folklore scholar whose official title is Director for Academic and Cultural Programs at the John D. Calandra Italian American Institute in Queens College, which is part of the City University of New York. He's also a Brooklyn-born and raised Italian-American. And today he's going to be talking with us about his latest book, which is called Built with Faith, Italian-American Imagination and Catholic Material Culture in New York City, which is described as, and I quote, a place-centric ethnographic study of the religious material culture of New York City's Italian-American Catholics. Uh, Joseph Shura, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Hello, Rachel. It's nice to be here. So, um, can you tell us before we get started on the book how you came to be a folklorist? Most people, most folklorists I know have some kind of narrative about how they came to be a folklorist. Sure, um, I'm a folklorist to a large degree because I was born and raised for the most part of my life in Brooklyn, and uh, Brooklyn um, has and New York City in general has an incredible diversity, and I was uh, privileged to be part of that city uh, growing up in the. Um, from the 60s and the 70s and 80s. In particular, I, I, my, my, my dad was uh, uh, transferred in his job to Connecticut for about five years. And when I came back, there was a, I had a, in, in part because I was um, somewhat of an outsider, given that I had been away from New York City for five years, I, I began to have an appreciation, a more in-depth appreciation for the diversity of the city. And so my high school, as many high schools are, are sort of divided up into various cliques and groups. And and I found myself sort of, um, you know, going from back and back and forth from one group to the other. And I, I learned that, you know, these, these, my, my student, my uh, high school students, um, uh, classmates were um, different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, and they sort of expressed themselves in different ways and dressed in certain ways and spoke in different ways and had their different languages. And I, I, there was something about that moment coming back to New York City to, and into the high school situation um, where I, there was something I was just jazzed by the diversity of um of my neighborhood and the city and began to take a particular interest in that diversity. I was then very fortunate to have met um, uh, several of uh, our colleagues uh, who mentored me in a number of different ways, both formally and informally. And um, I, uh, in the uh, late 1970s, I met Anna Lomax, who at the time was uh, working with and presenting Italian immigrant uh, folk musicians and worked a little bit with her. And then um, through Anna, actually met um, Shelley Posen, who was is a Canadian uh, folklorist who was working at the time with uh, Maxine Miska in Brooklyn, working on a uh, project called Brooklyn Rediscovery, which uh, was investigating Brooklyn folk life. And there is when I began to do... Um, you know, my first field work in uh, New York City and uh, in in Brooklyn in particular with the um, Italian-American community. And then from there through Shelley and Maxine, I met Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, who had just started um, at the NYU's Performance Studies Program and um, began to study with Barbara and other scholars who were there. And so that eventually led me to um, working with those folklorists and anthropologists led me um, to um, University of Pennsylvania, where I worked on my PhD um, 
in folklore and folk life. It's interesting this what you say about becoming interested in New York folklore when you came back after a period away. I think that quite often happens. I'm much more interested in British folklore now that I don't live there. And so when I get back, go back, I'm very interested in it. It's the water that you breathe. And then you step out for a little bit and you realize there's something really special about what you just took, you took for granted for so long. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and to orient, help orientate some of our listeners who haven't formally studied folklore, have you got any kind of like definition of working definition of folklore that you kind of turn to? Because um, in outside of academia, there can be different understandings of what that term uh, applies to. Um, yeah, um, I think, you know, for one of the things, it's, you know, it's definitely the study of the aesthetics of everyday life. Um, the ways, the informal ways and sometimes formal ways that people communicate um, through um, art, you know, artistic means and creative means. And I, I, I understand that sort of broadly, um, broadly, broadly understood. Um, uh, it, the, um, the, the social aspects of our lives are imbued with our, our, our folklore and folk life, things that we've learned informally and things that we uh, express in um, um, various contexts that help to create a sense of self and a sense of identity with other people. They're not institutionally taught. I think that's the, one of the, the, the things that folklorists are, are constantly referring back to is the sort of informal nature of um, ways in which uh, various skills and aesthetics are learned and passed on and performed and, and, and embodied, um, I think is the way that uh, I understand folklore and folk life uh, to be defined. So tell us now about Built with Faith and how this, what the book's about and how it came about. I know it's the product of many years of research. Yeah, uh, Built with Faith is... Um, in, is, is um, been work that I've been engaged in for the past 30, 35 years. Some of the articles in the book, some of the chapters in the books were previous, uh, previously published articles. And I'm the book it concerns itself with the uh, religious artistry of Italian Americans in uh, New York City. The folk is ethnographic, so I've been looking, uh, working with people, collaborating with uh, uh, various um, individuals and communities um, for a couple of decades now, and uh, the concern with how they have, uh, they create. Uh, artistic products that express and enhance their religious beliefs and religious background. Um, it, when I first began this work, I it was purely ethnographic, and I was looking um, at what people were doing, but I didn't have the kind of historical depth that the book now um, adds to the full, complete story of various art forms that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. So, you know, for example, um, I look at uh, yard shrines or religious statues that are put in, in ensconced on people's um, lawns or in front yards. Uh, I, I got an understanding of what it meant for the people who did it, for the people who use it, for the people who pass by and see it. But um, it, it took a while to get that um, historical documentation. And so that's, I think, um, uh, a part of the book that wasn't there in the original um, uh, articles that um, I had worked on over the years. In the introduction, you, you talk a little bit about how these kinds of uh uh, examples of expressive, expressive culture that uh, um, resonate with people's uh, personal devotion, but are often in public places. Um, they can be shrines, they can be um, altars, uh, they can be um, what? What do you call them? Presepios? These little nativity scenes? Is is that how you say it? Um, yeah. Yep. Presepio. Presepio. And, and, or presepi in plural. Right. And then uh, you also look at Christmas lights and processions as well as the uh, one particular grotto. But you say that often these kinds of um, pieces of material culture are dismissed uh, by official uh, people in officialdom, the church or cultural commentators. They're, they're, they're looked down on. Is that right? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, this is particularly true for yard shrines. I mean, I think, you know, the common uh, term for them in journalistically speaking, and even in some sort of some academic uh, works is the bathtub Madonnas. And so the... <laughs> Right. And that's and that's that's the reaction that that phrase elicits. And so there's a the a, there's a, a sense that these things are known by the ways in which they the terms in which they're used. And they're kind of a code in a sense. So what does bathtub Madonna convey? It conveys in one hand um, artistically, it conveys um, uh, the, the question of kitsch and something that is tacky, that is not highly thought out um, um, artistically. And it also uh, refers to, in terms of its context of religion, refers to a somewhat um, somewhat demeaned, uh, somewhat less than um, serious belief system. And that uh, people who uh, put a virgin, a concrete statue of the Virgin Mary, say, let's say, on their front yard are um, somewhat vapid and uh, somewhat uh, not really um, uh, in, in, in keeping with Catholic doctrine or uh, really in keeping with um, religion in general, that this is a somewhat less than expression of religious belief. And um, so I think that that's the case for a number of different things that I looked at. And, um, in particular, what I, I one of the chapters looks at um, um, Christmas house displays. In New York City, Christmas, well, the Christmas house displays is an, a, 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 a typically American phenomena. Um, in New York City, Christmas house displays and these rather um, um, uh, a large, uh, ex ex exorbitant um, displays are are have been have come to be associated with Italian Americans because a number of Italian American individuals and Italian American communities are the places where you can really see some stunning over the top house displays. Well, of course, when um, when when newspapers write about it, there's they are one. Uh, often say that these things are the works of the nouveau riche who don't know what to do with their money, and this is just about displaying um, um, their newfound source of wealth, and they're just showing off. Um, when in fact, when you, when you go and talk to people, you realize there's a whole lot more going on that never ever. Um, gets expressed in, in the newspapers. And, 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 and by newspapers, I mean tabloids and more of the more serious-minded uh, newspapers. And there's religious belief going on behind them for many of people who um, that I interviewed in New York City who do these um, uh, this Christmas house displays. Um, there's a sense of, in the spirit of Christmas, giving back, providing a gift for the community um, and uh, sharing with the neighbors and and the city at large, um, uh, uh, sort of an altruistic uh, element to uh, the Christmas season. So much so at the point that many of them collect, make, get donations for the people who visit, and then take those donations and pass them on to charitable, charitable organizations of a number, medical, religious, what have you. So the idea was to, I mean, it wasn't the it wasn't the driving force for doing the book, but um, when I began to look around at um, the, the the various things that I was, the various art, religious artistry that I was looking at, which were in a place like New York and Brooklyn and Queens, the borough, those boroughs, they're everywhere. I mean, they're just, they're just, all you have to do is walk down certain blocks and there's just a proliferation um, of these objects. Um, I, as I began to find them and began to interview people and began to talk with people and other people who use them as well and who take them in, I began to see this kind of disparity between how they're un how they're conceived and understood and used at the local level and then how they are um, discussed at sort of larger level outside of the neighborhood. So part of part of the, what the book began to do was try to strike a balance between what's happening what's being what's being said by the people who create these objects and also what's being said by the people who don't know anything about these communities and how communities and community identities are being shaped by 
newspaper and media notions of these very these religious folk art objects. Right, I think that's something that the uh, folklorists can are uniquely placed to do is to to bridge this gap between inner and outside uh, perceptions. Another thing I noticed from your introduction is this: you you talk about this uh, <clears throat> excuse me concept of uh, work well work done well, or I don't know how you say it in Italian, lavoro ben fatto, exactly. or something like lavoro that. Ben fatto. Um, yeah um which tell us about that sure um one of the things uh in working through the book was trying to understand some in addition to the particulars of these various art forms sort of what were the um what were the sort of a concerning aesthetic choices and philosophical positions that these art forms revealed of the makers and the communities um from which they come from and this um profound respect for craft and skill executed well is 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 something that is um deeply felt within the italian american community here in new york city um the idea that um that a, a, a you know something as simple as and not so simple of course as food that is prepared in a in a certain way and with certain kind of devotion a certain kind of attention um to or to a brick wall or to a sidewalk a cement job that the that the the idea that the the creator the worker um the person engaged with um, a certain um certain um object and a certain set of skills takes pride in his or her work and that the pride of that work is 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 shown in the finished product and so that this is something that's not only valued by the individual but also by the community at large so that you know on oftentimes i've you know talking with people about somebody else's you know shrine or altar um will say you know that was really beautiful that was really you could see that the person really loved the work that he or she was doing um because look at the fine detailing here at the corner or look at the way in which the brick was laid or look away, look at look at the the needlework on this embroidered cloth that's placed on a on a on a domestic altar um look at the the care and attention that was done there and so the 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 constant knowledge and the constant attention to work done well i think is is um an important aspect of italian american folk art in general and italian american uh, religious um um art here in in the city mm i really love that because um i'm reading in a different context about uh, craft and and this idea of working on crafts and how this desire to keep working and, and to make things better and better uh, is is part of constructing a meaningful life. So I, I really appreciated reading about this in a different context. So let's um, come to the first uh, main chapter now after the introduction, which is called Private Devotions in Public Places, the Sacred Spaces of Yard Shrines and Sidewalk Altars. Tell us about this chapter. Sure. Um, so in places like... Um Carroll Gardens, these are neighborhoods in Brooklyn, um, Carroll Gardens, Bensonhurst, Diker Heights, and uh, Astoria, Queens. Um, one walking through the streets or driving through the streets can see a proliferation of um, uh, small chapels, small shrines on people's um, very limited tiny uh, front yards um, and they could be made out of wood they could be made out of um, brick they could be made out of concrete uh, and, or and they could be made out of stone I'm sorry um, um, and they are found in you know they're found in, in great numbers um, as I said before the idea that um, the concrete Madonna and uh, sort of pink flamingos as uh, sort of a pair of uh, kitschy consumable goods is, I think, um, sort of uh, blown away by the level of artistry and craftsmanship that one finds in these um, yard shrines. And 
So one of the things I wanted to do with this was simply to kind of look at the shrines and kind of come up with categories of shrines, um, looking at uh, the, the design elements, the form elements, look at the um, types of um, religious statuary that are placed there, and um, talk to the builders about their motives for uh, making these shrines, and then ultimately how they're used and perceived in the community. So. Um, as I said, there's this is they there are um, a number of different uh, materials that are used, but there are also different forms. There can be um, a kind of uh, uh, an entrance at 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 the gable end. There's sort of a pitched roof. There can be some dome-like um, structures, but the shapes vary to uh, a, a number of degree, and um, it also depends on the type of material that's being used. So stone of various sorts um, will uh, create a more grotto-like effect. And then grottos are a place of often of Marian apparitions. So grottos are most often associated with uh, the Virgin Mary. And so you'll see statues of uh, that figure in stone-like grottos throughout, um, throughout the city. Um, one of the things that I, uh, I do is you know, so it's understood as this contemporary phenomenon with sort of very limited historical antecedents. When in fact, the 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 yard shrine um, really goes back uh, centuries in Europe. Some people, and there's debate about this. It goes back. To, some people argue that it goes back to antiquity, while others say this is really something that's developing in the in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, um, in places like Naples and. Palermo, the um, the uh, shrine, the what they in Italy is called the Adicola Sacra, the sort of um, holy tabernacle, um, will, which could be a roadside chapel or uh, um, an object that's placed on the wall of a of a city a building, um, really takes. Um, Sort of, it's uh, it comes to a almost like a pinnacle um, aesthetically in during the Baroque period, where you get these rather highly elaborate structures that are um, um, created and maintained at the local level. These are not church-initiated um, 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 objects for the most part, but some things that are community-based. And um, while you don't have these sort of direct sort of um, uh, objects in a place like New York City and the great wave of immigration from the 1880s to, let's say, 1923, um, Italian-Americans are not placing shrines on the buildings. There is a host of vernacular um, folk creations that are happening on the ground in um, various immigrant communities at the turn of the 20th century. And those begin to morph and change as Italians move to the more suburban parts of the city, as they move from the um, Manhattan's urban cores, the slums at the time, uh, places like Little Italy, the Lower East Side, um, East Village, um, um, and Harlem. Um, they have a little bit more space to move and a little bit more space to create in um, their um, somewhat semi-suburban um, um, houses in the outer boroughs. And one of the things that's associated with it, and I, I think that and, and people don't normally talk about it, is this older tradition of sidewalk altars. Um, sidewalk altars are um, uh, altars that people, mostly women, um, um, take uh, their religious statues that they have in their house and for the feast day, um, the um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel is a big feast in Harlem and in Williamsburg. They'll place, they'll create an, an altar outside on the sidewalk and then place their statue um, and other, uh, other items like uh, candles and flowers and um, elements that um, denote that this is a sacred space of a uh, domestic altar placed outside. Um, are very much have been historically very much part of Italian American public religiosity, and they're part of the yard shrine phenomenon. And so, I, one of the things I wanted to do with this chapter was to show that there is a continuity between um, domestic altars, domestic festival altars, outdoor sidewalk altars, and yard shrines. That there is this um, sort of mm -hmm. give and take between private public because 
people have altars in their homes. And in some cases, those sites become the location for devotion. Um, I, I remember um, a, a woman that I uh, interviewed who's now since passed away, um, Tessie Spina, had and who would was devoted to St. Donatus, would put a sidewalk altar out each year um, in her Williamsburg neighborhood. But she had this altar inside. And she told me that, you know, some people would knock on her door before they would go to work or when they came back from work and to say a prayer because her space for um, one reason or the other because of her devotion and um, was understood as being a sort of sacred channel between the mundane and um, the um, sacred. And it, it became a vehicle, uh, um, a vehicle by which one's prayers were sort of amplified, and so that 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 attention on the local domestic level, on the sort of um, neighborhood street level, um, outside of the halls of um, the Catholic churches, was uh, something was novel for me and 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 fascinating and and I realized the and I came to realize the importance in um, people's everyday lives. One of the things I loved is where you have this list of um, uh, who is represented in these yard shrines. There's uh, uh, Mary as by far the uh, front runner there with I think 56 um, different representations in various kind of incarnations. But then she's followed by St. Anthony of Padua. And you say partly who is represented has to do with who's available in terms of what you can buy at your local garden center, which I think is interesting. But I was curious about St. Anthony of Padua. Why is he so strongly represented? Sure. Um, Historically, in in places like Italy, um, there are certain devotions that were promoted by the Catholic Church that became um, took hold at the local level in really significant ways. Not only Saint Anthony of Padua, um, um, uh, in the, uh, the aspect of the Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Um, is pervasive through um, southern Italy. And so Italian immigrants um, from various regions um, brought their devotions to St. Anthony of Padua, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and some places like, and uh, figures like St. Donatus, because the church had done such, were so active in the um, the counter-reformation of imparting um, devotions to these um, various uh, uh, religious holy personages throughout southern Italy. And then on the other hand, there are other saints um, who are very particular to a town um, that really are not really found elsewhere. And they're very, 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 very local. I think of St. Cono of Tijano and St. Paulinus of Nola, both in the region of, of Campania, where you find their devotions practiced in Williamsburg because of immigrants coming from those specific towns. And so they their, their devotions are not as pervasive as um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, St. Anthony of Padua, um, mm-hmm. um, which uh, St. Lucy for Sicilians have a, uh, um, have a, a, a very strong following among Italian-Americans, regardless of where they came from or their ancestors came from originally. But yes, as you said, one of the, the things are, one of the, the aspects of the yard shrines are there are only a certain set number of figures that you can find in a nursery. Um, and they are kind of, they've become kind of standardized um, in part as a kind of confluence of church practice, um, ethnic devotion, and um, sort of the market in um, garden products. So again, yes, Inferno Prague, Sacred Heart, um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, St. Jude, St. Anthony of Padua, um, um, some others. And so if you really want to have a yard shrine for a particular local saint or even one not so local like um, St. Anthony the Abbot or Cosmo, the saints Cosmo and Damiano, you have to go to a religious shop and where those kinds of more particular uh, statuary can be found. And then you need to go out of your way to protect those statues from uh, the weather, from 
um, you know, possible teenage vandalism because they're not, they're, they're harder to find and they're more expensive. Right. Right. And, um, this kind of like, uh, bricolage perhaps of, of amassing, um, items to put on display is also a feature of your next chapter, which is called Imagine Places and Fragile Landscapes, Nostalgia and Utopia in Nativity Precipi. Um, So tell us about this one. One, there's a couple of things going on with the presepi that um, that I, I find uh, fascinating because there really is with the altars, like with the altars, this sort of delight with accretion and um, the the interplay of contrasts and how things sort of um, connect with each other. But also, um, one of the things that I found throughout. Uh, my work is this attention to the display and manipulation of the human figure, whether it's the religious statue in a in a yard shrine or altar or um, processed in a, a festival. The presepio, which is uh, um, a nativity scene, um, is delights in the all of these all of this the accretion um the manipulation of the human figure in these statues um depicting the nativity so the 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 italian presepio and i should say that you know um nativity scenes are not unique to italians or italian americans in fact many of the things i talk about in this book are not particular to italian americans they are pervasively catholic um so throughout Europe, Latin America, and and Asia and elsewhere, um, Africa, uh, these types of things can be found. These are not sort of, um, while they are folk art and vernacular art, they are they are in keeping with the Catholic Church, the precepts, precepts of the Catholic Church. So all that to say that as a preface for the, um, the presepio. What the Italian-Americans and the Italians do mm-hmm. with the nativity scene is... Um, uh, somewhat significant because it is not merely the manger scene, um, the scene of the Holy Family, um, the, um, the cow and the ass, um, the, um, the shepherds and the three kings. The, the nativity is placed in a, often a sprawling uh, landscape of both urban life with marketplace and vendors, um, store sh- uh, shops, uh, store uh, stores and shops, as well as um, a a large sprawling um, bucolic um, panorama of woods and mountains and streams, all taking place for the most part in people's basements or living rooms. Um, so these are not tiny affairs. These are, you know, things that could be um, ten feet, ten feet by, you know, six feet. They can go from floor to ceiling. I know one gentleman, um, um, a dear friend, Chris Devito, in his very um, relatively um, small uh, Brooklyn apartment, um, moves his living room furniture into his bedroom to erect uh, uh, this. Um, temporary um, 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 landscape. So um, the idea is to place the nativity, the God incarnate, in the everyday lives of this um, this uh, sort of imagined space of the presepio. And so, and I'm, and what this is, and this is the kind of thing where, you know, unless you listen to people, unless you go out and discover, the idea is like, you know, and I've, as I've read about in newspapers, isn't this charming that people are building this huge thing? And they, ha- isn't it funny how the G- the birth of Jesus is next door to a uh, somebody cooking sausages or um, uh, uh, farmers tending the land? And the idea is to um, make visible um, the 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 story of the nativity in ways that connected to everyday life to vernacularize vernacularize um, the um, Catholic teachings so that they are part of um, um, everyday life can you give us an example of of a, a way that this has been done yeah, one of the things that happens, of course, is um, there's a lot of um, autobiography written into the um, presepio, so that um, 
people do a number of different things. They will bring back items. They'll bring back figures from Italy. These are immigrants, right? So they'll bring back figures. And so the figures represent um, their hometown, or they will landscape the Presepio with um, miniature housing stock, a vernacular architecture that is reminiscent of the ones that they grew up with, or an imagined um, sort of um, artistically rendered um, articulation of their a local Italian vernacular architecture. The other things that people do is that they, those who are born in the United States, Italian Americans, will um, feature elements of their um, their um, their own family's autobiography. So that could include figurines that. There were were heirlooms and handed down from their uh, their parents and grandparents um, to figurines that would represent their um, their relatives. You know, so there's a figure of a farmer and that well, that was my grandfather because he he was a peasant in 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 Italy before he came here. But the other thing that people do is they also politicize their presepio in sort of um, uh, interesting and um, small and interesting ways. For example, there was a, um, a woman that I um, came to meet, uh, Lorraine Ayaketa, who was anti-gun and pro-animal, right? That was just sort of her personal political beliefs. So what she did was overriding the family tradition. She banished from the tableau any figures depicting hunters with guns or butchers with slaughtered animals and or hanging cuts of meat, because these are the kinds of things that you can see in an Italian-American presepio. And she, 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 she featured the lambs uh, and the sheep um, in her presepio. She she made them a, a central part of her um, depiction of the nativity. Um, another gentleman, uh, Frank Di Bernardo, who has been very active um, uh, formally with um, uh, uh, gay and lesbian uh, Catholics um, and trying to gain more acceptance and recognition within the Catholic uh, Church for um, um diversity, um, used his figurines in ways that uh, uh, someone just looking at the Presepio would never have been able to see it. But at, at one point when I was visiting him, there was a, a Catholic priest and a Catholic nun who were very active in um, um, in, in um, uh, gay and lesbian Catholics in, um, in, in the church. And he uh, created this little um, uh, assemblage of a um, a hooded figure, uh, which was coming from the Spanish penitent tradition that he bought in Spain, but that he um, um, he saw as representing the the kind of Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, and and also a police figure, and alongside this nun figure and, and a figure of a priest. And for him, it was this little way of kind of making a commentary, one that was somewhat veiled and one that was only revealed upon talking with the creator, that this was his way of um, making a political statement in his, in his, in his um, a sprawling uh, presepio. And that's just one of a number of, you know, one of a number of examples in which the presepio is made to mean more than um, uh, Catholic, what, what, what one would understand from just following a strict Catholic Orthodox tradition. Right. So, but you said that these pieces are often in people's basements or in a bedroom or something. So how are the public coming to see these and are they providing an opportunity for the creators to actually not only put their a narrative into figures and a la and a, this little built landscape, but also talk to the people that come and see their presepio. Yeah. Um, so the fest, the the fest, Christmas holiday is a, a an occasion where things sort of are altered and the home is opened up in a number of different ways. Um, this is the same thing you find with the domestic altars, people creating altars for the festival, the sacred days um, the, the, of holy days. So um, what happens is neighbors, so neighbors will start to arrive or come to visit and pay visits to someone's home during Christmas when the presepio is finally finished. There's a kind of informal unveiling of the presepio. Um, so that's one way. So I, I went to a number of, of 
people's homes where I would be one of a number of people who were visiting um, just because the presepio was finally done. The other thing that people do is um, they open their house in home in a very formal way. Um, there was the um, the um, a gentleman in Queens who created a light and sound show for his presepio and his son was a Catholic priest. So the, his son would bring to the basement a presepio, um, children from the local parochial school, local Catholic school, and they would put on a, a show that was coordinated to, um, a recording, which, uh, uh, with lights and sound and curtains that opened and closed, they put on this performance um, that totally of um, of the nativity. And so it opens up it opens up the um, house in a number of different ways. And 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 then the final way in which these things become more public is people then actually move them out into their um, front yard. Um, Giovanni Miniero, a gentleman in Diker Heights, had bills for the past couple of years now, has built this enormous presepio in his front yard, um, covered with plexiglass, um, again, with lights and sound um, uh, emanating from this diorama. And so it's a way of... Um, constantly pushing the boundaries or blurring the boundaries between private and public and uh, who can see it and who can't see it. One, uh, a, a tradition that is basically domestic and internal um, um, is one that's constantly being made public in a variety of ways. Right. So we stick with the public and with Christmas in the next chapter, which is called Festive Intensification and Place Consciousness in Christmas House Displays, which you referred to a little bit earlier in, in our conversation. And you said that this these could be um, interpreted, I think, as, as gestures of altruism towards the neighborhood. And that made me smile because I remember when I lived in London where these things are not common, on my way from the station to my house, there was one of these massive displays. And every time I walked past it, it would make me smile because it was just so exuberant. So it sounds like there are many more of these in, in the area in which you're studying. So what did you find in, in, in your study of these particular displays? Well, one of the things, of course, is there's this, um, you know, Christmas is a, a very strange holiday in which we are expected to remember this humble birth of um, of God um, in, in a manger, but yet are, you know, uh, spending incredible amounts of money on all kinds of things like gifts. It's, it's a major economic holiday for the United States. So there's this very strange dichotomy going on with Christmas for everybody in uh, uh, who, uh, who who believe and practice, um, you know, um, the, the holiday of Christmas in the United States. Um, for for the people that I worked with, and it's mostly men in this in this case, mostly men who are, are working on this, this is a way to to strike a balance between kind of their working class roots of being electrician electricians and being carpenters, um, but also to show off their sort of a metal, middle class masculinity by highlighting this um, these private houses. These are of course these are for the most part uh, single family homes that are standing on, um, you know, uh, a single house on a, on, on property and sort of, you know, middle, definitely middle class um, um, uh, communities in the outer boroughs of New York, places like Diker Heights. Um, and so they're um, showing off this, um, these um, different ways of being a man, but also being of a, being of a homeowner and showing that I, you know, I, I can do this because I can do this. I have a house, but I also have the skills to do it. Um, and, um, What's happened over the years in a place like Diker Heights is uh, sort of two things. One is that it's become it's it's become a business, and so that the um, the creation of these domestic Christmas displays has been farmed out to one individual and one company for the most part. Now it's even expanded beyond this guy, um, um, a, an Italian American um, gentleman who's who works to outfit um, department store Christmas displays. And, you know, that is one of the origins of this, of the American Christmas house display is the department store display. So they've hired him who he creates these ever more 
complicated um, mechanicals and uh, creates little series of dioramas in front of people's um, front yards so that um, what happens is that the houses become take on a theme so it could be the theme of um of the small it's a small world based on the disney display down in disney world um and other types of thematic displays that uh, give the individual home uh, a personality and thus in, uh, imparting that personality onto the homeowner in turn what it's done is also create um, uh, neighborhood identities. So places like um, Canarsie, Brooklyn, or Diker Heights, Brooklyn, they, you know, for the most part, don't have any distinctive feature to them that makes them different from any from a number of other different neighborhoods in um, in New York City, um, because the housing stock is not unique, the history is not particularly uh, noteworthy, and so when you so that something like Diker, a place like Diker Heights, when you go and Google Diker Heights, what you get is Christmas house displays. The Christmas house displays have come to impart a sense of identity, a sense of uniqueness for this community um, um, and for the neighborhood at large. And so um, how that um, that muni- that recognition um, um, uh, you know, that place consciousness was uh, what I came to find as a sort of an, an interesting aspect of the Christmas house displays in New York City and for Italian-Americans um, it was, was, I think, um, in, important because it, it's one of those, as I said before, it's what locals understand it to be and what the outside um, outsiders, in, in quotation marks, understand it to be. And so that there's a, a, a tension constantly going on of ha- who gets to define the neighborhood, who gets to f- define the community and its residents um, vis-a-vis this um, art uh, art project. That's inter- That links in very interestingly with the next chapter, which is um, looking at the Our Lady of Mount Carmel Grotto and Rose Bank, Staten Island, and you're looking at the multivocality of that. How how um, the people who are invested in this um, grotto, their voices overlap to create um, to I think contribute to the shrine's symbolic meaning, is how you how you put it. Um, so this is a much this is a, a much older um, piece than some of the others that um, we've covered in this. So far in this conversation, tell us about the the Our Lady of Mount Carmel Grotto. Yeah, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Grotto is was built and is operated by the voluntary um, um, members of a religious society, the Our Lady of Mount Carmel Society in Rosebank Grotto and and, and Rosebank in Staten Island, and it was begun in the 1930s. Um, in part because of an individual, the president at the time, who was a very charismatic figure. He had lost a young son, and this was a kind of um, sort of a, a way of working through his, uh, a collective way of working through his um, um his mourning and grief process, and it, it's a it's a really stunning um, site. One should go there. It's open seven 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 days a week 24 hours a day um it, a, a series of chapels that are embedded with um um beach pebbles and um translucent plastic florets um uh, decorated with uh, statues that have been donated from various people uh funeral cards holy cards uh written prayers that are, are left there um i'm happy to say that uh several years ago um working in collaboration with the um social club we were able to get um um have the um uh, shrine listed in the New York State and National Registry of Historic Places. So what I was intrigued about this, when I first began working there um, and going to visit, there was no written history of the feast. And when I began to chat with people, people had different stories to tell me about how it was created, and sometimes conflicting stories, um, and conflicting stories about the maker, the, the, this president, uh, his name was Vito Russo, the president at the time, his motives, how, where he came from, um, how it got started, who worked on it. So 
I became fascinated that the, in fact, there was there was no singular narrative of this this space, and that the space was constantly being interpreted and reinterpreted by the its um, some of its makers, some of its caretakers, and of course some many of the people who came who came to visit and pray at this chapel. So many of them were unaware of the origin of this chapel. They just knew it for what they saw in front of them, from what other people told them. And they imparted their own interpretation, their own histories. And so it was this confluence of storytelling that in, in, in it, that created an identity for this one, um, this one structure. And so, and I think that for me, there was a lesson to be learned beyond this one chapel so that, you know, a lot of buildings are not just simply the written history that we're that are given to us, but they're also um, um, the history. They're the stories that people tell about them and the meanings that they impart um, to the uh, the buildings at hand. There's a you you include well throughout the book you include excerpts from your interviews, some of which are formal and some of some of which are just these uh, as I think you call them these sidewalk chats. And there's a lovely I think you're asking this lady why she goes to the um, grotto instead of going to church, and she says she does go to the church, but she just she just loves the grotto. She loves how it's made. She loves what it includes. She loves how it's constructed. The cross that's gone into it and um and that she can go there anytime and that she's often alone and so it's this really she gives a a wonderful sense of of why it's so important to her um and yeah and then and her name Lorraine and, and Lorraine was I think for me very um was her my chat with her was very uh, her interview was with was very um educational because I think she was one of those people very early on that um spoke to this idea of lavoro ben fatto that that the work involved um in and, in and of itself imparts a, a special meaning and and gives and and helps to um to bestow upon these creations um, a heightened sense of its 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 own importance, and yeah, she's her her that interview is um, she's incredibly articulate and 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 really gets to the heart of how um, a space and a place like um, um, the shrine in our, in, in Rosebank, Staten Island, can. Um, can have meaning in people's lives that something that's really off the grid, something that even till to this day really gets any kind of attention. Right. And, and, and in the last chapter, you turn to uh, religious processions, which um, how did you come to see them as part of the urban landscape um, of New York? Yeah, um, I look at a series of procession, a constellation of um, movement through urban space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and um, uh, and this is a neighborhood that, for some listeners of uh, the podcast, might know because this is where the the Giglio feast takes place. A lot of work has been done and um, by folklorists um, um, about this um, feast, but there's a number of other feasts going on there, and so one of the things I looked at the way is the way in which the um, the processions map out a series of affiliations on the urban grid one of the things they do is they map out the old world they map out Italy um, they uh, recreate certain kinds of narratives and origin tales about the the the, the Saints and the Virgin Mary onto the streets of Brooklyn um, they map out of uh, historical affiliations of where the um, some of these processions date back to the uh, turn of the late 19th century um, um, various uh, markers on the urban grid, some, uh, uh, someone who started the devotion or introduced the devotion, someone who took care of the devotion in, in troubled times in the 1930s and the 1940s, um, the place where new immigrants, post-World War II immigrants, revived the, the devotion. So these things are all kind of mapped out, um, the history, um, old affiliations, uh, relationships to Italy, and um, they're all... Um, um, are um, mapped out in this very, very tiny neighborhood. It's basically a 10 by 10 block uh, area. Um, 
So this is also uh, an area, and so th this is a, a community that's been there from, you know, from the late 19th century with various waves of immigrants coming, um, Italian immigrants, uh, an incredibly diverse community. There are um, a wide range of people living in and around this neighborhood of Williamsburg and Greenpoint. Um, and of course, as some of your listeners might know, this is, of course, a um, a um, a focal point of hyper gentrification, um, and uh, in New York City, uh, in which um, a neighborhood that had two and three story uh, wood frame buildings dating back to the 1920s have now been. Um, the landscape has been transformed by not only clubs and galleries and bars and new restaurants um, and new communities, an uh, influx of um, uh, new communities from outside of New York City, young, many young people, college educated, but also the construction of you know, multi-storied condo buildings, high luxury uh, apartment buildings that is transferred and transform the ways in which um, the Italian-Americans in this case, and as well as other communities, working class and middle, lower middle class communities, have had to contend with gentrification and how gentrification, um, how uh, vernacular cultures like these processions are viewed and interpreted by um, in light by the newcomers and in light of this new um, uh, arrival of um, new people. So what are the, some of the things you've found in kind of the recent years as this has been, because you've been documenting this for a long time, haven't you? But uh, but things have been changing rapidly in those decades. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, I mean, this is a neighborhood that I live in. I've been living in there for decades as well, so that my relationship to the, the community and my quote unquote informants is and highly fluid and and and, and informal. Um, what's happening? Um, basically, one of the things that is happening is that first of all, the points where people stop along the processional route have to, ha, route has diminished because people are moving out, newcomers are coming in, they don't have the same understanding of what's going on. And the other thing is, for the most part. Um, uh, um, as I say, there's been um, um, this sense of um, uh, a gentrifying gaze and that people have come to see themselves not as um, players with uh, equal players with the larger the community at large as they're processing through the street, but they become the object of um, the gentrifying gaze so that the the newcomers come out and it's all very funny to them to see uh, people processing. Um, you know, what happens is that with the proliferation of iPhones, um, smartphones, um, everybody's taking, you know, all of a sudden you pass by a corner and, and 10 people are simply taking photographs or videos of the procession and not engaging, not making a donation, um, not saying a prayer, not saying hello to the people who are processing because they know them, because they don't know them. And um, this idea that they are, in a sense, as some people have said, you know, sort of like, like, um, it's like circus animals and that they're just seen as an object and not seen as a kind of um, a part of a community that has had a history there for um, a good number of years. And this, I think, is something you comment on in your conclusion. You, you uh, relate how you uh, encountered a student, I think as an Italian-American descended student, who is uh, expressing amazement that Italian-Americans still create these things like shrines or do these things like pr processions. And, and you go on to say, well, he, he's missing what's go really going on here, I think. Yeah, yeah. In my conclusion, I, I kind of reference um, uh, a, a colleague, actually, who, when I was um, telling this colleague about my book in progress, was shocked that people still prayed to the Virgin Mary and still uh, created altars and shrines and processed in, in, in street processions um, and made devotional and votive um, acts to the, um, the divine and the supernatural. And um, my book hopes to set out um, and to better understand not only the history um, but the fact that um, there are still believers and um, there are still creators and together mixing religion and artistry are um, helping to have helped to um, 
for us New Yorkers um, to better understand um, the ways in which the city functions um, um, at a local level, but at large. Um, New York is has historically been a series of interlocking neighborhoods. Um, and I think that these things that I, I talk about in the book um, have helped to make New York City, New York City. Right. And I think somewhere you write that, that it's also, it, it helps people to form their own relationship with the city and even construct it, even actually kind of materially construct it. Or, and I think that's a really uh, wonderful way of looking at things. Um, so we're running out of time. Is there anything you wanted to say about the book that I haven't uh, given you the opportunity to? Although I also want to add that it's very well il illustrated with lots of photographs um, before I forget to say that. But is there anything that you wanted to add at this stage? Um, I, just to say that um, I'm really happy that uh, University of Tennessee Press was, will be putting out the paperback edition uh, this year and uh, making it available to um, ever more people. Um, and so I'm really excited by that. That's terrific. That's terrific. So um, before I let you go, uh, I have a, a new final, uh, traditional final question for the podcast, which is, can you tell me what you most value about uh, being a folklorist or what you find the most rewarding aspect of your work? Yeah, I'm, I'm never bored. <laughs> um, I can... I, I'm never bored because as a folklorist, um, I, you know, I can, I, I, and I've found myself in a number of occasions where, you know, whether it be a, a walking into a bar that I was unfamiliar with or, or being at a party that I didn't know many of the individuals, I think that folklorists as ethnographers um, have the ability um, to um, have insights into the ways in which um, people interact, the way in people uh, communicate and um, uh through various means, through their speech, through their 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 language, intonation, their dress, um, their stance, um, and uh, having those skills of of being observant, of being um, a good listener, as folklorists are, um, is. Um, when things get rough and get boring and in certain kinds of situations, um, one can um, always sort of fall back on that ethnographic mode and sort of better understand what's going on in a situation. And, and for me, it's, it's always offered me an endless um, um, uh, moments of delight and better understanding the world around me. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Joseph Shiora, for uh, taking part in this new books in folklore podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. <laughs>